Welcome to the JNMP podcast. This month we'll be looking at psychological treatments for post-concussion syndrome and also at patients' perceptions of dyskinesia in Parkinson's disease. Firstly, I'm joined on the phone by Dr. Amal Al-Sayeg from the Royal Edinburgh Hospital in Edinburgh. She and her colleagues have published in JNMP a paper looking at psychological approaches to the treatment of post-concussion syndrome. Amal, for a start, your paper says psychological treatments, but you really focus in on CBT. Why did you decide to look at that? Well, we know that patients with functional disorders respond to CBT when its focus is to improve function rather than offer a cure. And that's not a comment about the etiology of the functional disorder or the functional symptom. Rather that the disorder is chronic, patients present with disability, sometimes distress, and other treatments have been tried and and failed. And this can happen in, for instance, chronic fatigue. The basis of CBT is that thoughts, behavior, mood, and physical symptoms are all linked. So influencing one has an effect on the others, Mm. with the aim being to improve function and coping with symptoms. We were not aware of any definitive randomized controlled trial of CBT in patients who develop post-concussion syndrome after a mild traumatic brain injury. So we wanted to evaluate what clinical trial evidence existed on the efficacy of psychological therapies, including CBT. Now, in the paper, you go through your large inclusion criteria to search for papers. So can you take us through what you decided to include? Well, starting off, we believed there was going to be limited research. We, We included all forms of study design, including case series and pilots. And we included moderate and severe brain injury and brain injury from non-traumatic causes if it seemed that psychological interventions were addressing chronic problems in keeping with post-concussion syndrome and included those with mild traumatic brain injury. So if the study excluded patients with mild traumatic brain injury, we didn't look at those. And our paper comments on which studies were purely in a population of mild traumatic brain injury and which were not. Um, we had 42 studies eventually make it into our systematic review, and our paper focuses on the 17 randomized controlled trial, with the information from the other 25 papers being presented as supplemental material. Okay, now the papers that you include, the 17 there, were they of good quality or more mixed? Very mixed, and we use the consort guidelines to rate Um, the quality of studies and this is a 22 items and we had some trials scoring as little as uh, 7 and some as high as 19 so they varied greatly in quality. When you kind of took them as a whole was there a coherent theme that came out of it anything that you're taking home from those papers? Well we found the psychological intervention fell into one of four categories The first category was CBT for post-concussion syndrome as a whole or working on specific post-concussion syndrome symptoms. And these showed very encouraging results. All three trials we found demonstrated a benefit. The second category was information reassurance and education. This generally involved early provision of information about diagnosis, reassurance about prognosis, education on ways of coping and resumption of activities. 
Majority of these trials concluded no benefit or reported inconclusive findings. And this was somewhat of a surprise to us as the benefit of information, reassurance and education is generally endorsed in the mild traumatic brain injury literature. But we actually found more evidence that concluded no benefit when it is used routinely. And the third category was rehabilitation programs with a psychotherapeutic element. But the problem with these trials is that standalone efficacy of the psychotherapeutic element wasn't examined. And the diversity of delivery, setting, content, the model of the psychotherapy, outcome measures, meant that meaningful comparison wasn't possible. And the last category was mindfulness-based interventions and relaxations. Very limited evidence in that area, so these techniques wouldn't be recommended. At the beginning, you said you weren't aware of any definitive trials. Obviously, you wouldn't have let anything like that inform your clinical practice. Having done this systematic review, um, will you take anything away from it? Well, we, we would suggest that for the majority that present emergency departments in primary care with a mild traumatic brain injury, brief information explanation will be sufficient to manage any anxieties. For those that require further investigations or admission, more tailored and specific information, education and reassurance is perhaps warranted and should include that cognitive difficulties usually resolve by three months. So that although not definitive, our systematic review suggests that CBT shows promise as a treatment for the minority who develop post-concussion syndrome after a mild traumatic brain injury and further and more rigorous randomized controlled trials of CBT for post-concussion syndrome are needed. And having systematically reviewed the quality of the randomized controlled trials, our paper describes the problems and methodology which these future trials should address. Now, finally, at the beginning you talked about the similarity between post-concussion syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome, hence looking at psychological therapies. Now, if you talk about CFS and CBT in the same breath, you quite often call down the ire of some very vocal members of the CFS community. They feel that it's a cop-out. When you mention CBT to people uh, with post-concussion syndrome, how receptive are they to do it? I mean, essentially, what's patient acceptability like? Yeah. Well, this wrath that you describe of vocal members of the chronic fatigue syndrome community... I wonder whether that's related to assumptions that are made about etiology and debate about whether symptoms are real and the idea that symptoms are not taken seriously. We're not presenting CBT as a cure for post-concussion syndrome and assuming that if it works, that means the cause was psychological all along. In fact, in its detailed review, the World Health Organization cautioned against the terminology post-concussion syndrome as the etiological mechanism is currently unknown and as and association wasn't proof of causation. We use the term post-concussion syndrome in our paper because it's recognized by ICD-10 and DSM-4, and it's the one clinicians are most familiar with. But we find it more helpful to describe such constellations of symptoms as functional. An approach to management should focus on symptoms and improving function. So the dialogue shifts from finding the cause to improving function, and CBT is presented in this context. And we hope this would avoid the risk that patients are feeling judged. So it's a much more pragmatic treatment choice, really. Mm. Thanks for joining us, Amal. 
and that paper can be read in full on the JNMP website at jnmp.bmj.com. Next, I'm talking to Serena Hung, Associate Professor and Director of the Movement Disorders Fellowship in the Department of Neurology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. So, Serena, you and your colleagues have written this paper about patients' perceptions of dyskinesia in Parkinson's disease. It seems fairly fundamental. Has it not been looked at before? Um, People have touched on that before. Um, This is a concept that movement disorder specialists uh, can anecdotally um, tell each other that we have encountered this in our daily lives, but it has not been systematically looked at, uh, especially from the patient's point of view. Okay, so that really motivated you to go and do this research? Yes, yes. Right, so just briefly, can you tell us about what you did and what you found? Um, So what we did was we recruited about 250 patients, and they're divided into one of the three groups. So the first group is new diagnosis, uh, not on any medications. Uh, Second group is, you know, they've been diagnosed for a little bit longer, have the disease for a little bit longer, and have been on medications, but they do not experience dyskinesia just yet. And the third group are people who've had the disease for a while now and have been on medications for a while and now have started experiencing uh, dyskinesia. So we asked them questions that, um, you know, started with some background, and um, but some of the common questions that we asked all three groups are, um, what, you know, for the two groups that have not experienced dyskinesia yet, we asked them, so, you know, what do you think about dyskinesia? Um, have you heard of it? Do you know what it is? Um, Whereas in the third group, besides that, we actually asked them, um, you know, now that you've had dyskinesia, uh, how do you feel? Is it any different from before you got any dyskinesia? And so try to get an understanding as to uh, what their perceptions are. As part of your intervention, you had this short standardized description and explanation of dyskinesia. How did you describe it to them? So uh, dyskinesia um, are wriggling, writhing movements that are involuntary. And uh, patients experience that not because of Parkinson's disease itself, but because of the treatment that they receive. And um, this is something that not every patient is aware of. So in order to facilitate uh, and uh, this survey and get a fair assessment, uh, we started out with explaining this to patients just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Sure. So what did you find then? So what we found was, um, I have to say it's interesting, but not entirely unexpected. Uh, The first two groups, the groups that have not um, experienced dyskinesia yet, they are, um, they have a little bit more uh, concern about dyskinesia than uh, the third group who have already started experiencing dyskinesia. Um, And uh, in the first two groups, actually, uh, more than half of them would say that they would rather tolerate um, dyskinesia versus worsened Parkinson's symptoms. Whereas in the third group, they actually would, um, sorry, uh, in the third group, 83% of them actually would choose to tolerate dyskinesia over uh, worsened Parkinson's uh, symptoms. And that is actually significantly different. Yes, absolutely. 
So people's experience of dyskinesia wasn't actually as bad as their fear of it seemed to be? Yes, that would be the um, gist of what we found. Okay, now, obviously that has implications for treatment priorities for patients. How does that compare with what physicians think patients want? Uh, I think, you know, since we haven't done a systematic study, but based on my conversations with uh, colleagues in the field, uh, there are different schools of thoughts. So some physicians actually would feel that uh, patients should be on the best treatment um, you know, at the time without worrying about dyskinesia. That's one school of thought. And there's actually another school of thought that said, hey, we should do whatever we can to avoid the onset of dyskinesia. And um, I don't know... Uh, how true it is, but there are some patients. Uh, there are some doctors who actually will sacrifice treatment efficacy just so that there will be less danger of having dyskinesia later on in their lives. So your research would seem to indicate that patients would rather have the most efficacious treatment and not worry so much about dyskinesia in the future. Yes, actually, um, based on the third group, which are the people who have already experienced dyskinesia. Since they already know what it feels like, um, it seems like they, you know, after experiencing dyskinesia, they actually are less afraid of it uh, than the people who have never had first-hand experience of it. Okay, so do you think there's a role there for patient education, um, letting patients really understand what dyskinesia is and, and how it will affect them? Uh, absolutely. Uh, our group feels that um, treatment options should be a partnership between the physician and the patients. And so what the patients um, feel should play a significant part in how they are treated. And how patients make this decision would uh, require uh, being adequately informed of what dyskinesia is and also um, you know, have some idea as to what it's like, and that is the purpose of this paper, um, telling people, you know, from a patient's point of view, uh, what their perception is like. Obviously, we've been talking in generalities here, um, but when you're speaking to patients, what's there a big difference between individual patients um, about what they thought their priorities were, uh, whether it was about minimizing Parkinson's syndromes or, or avoiding dyskinesia? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in our day-to-day -day practice, uh, we have seen patients that have expressed views that are uh, widely variable. So some of my patients would tell me, I absolutely do not want dyskinesia for, you know, no matter what you have to do. And there are others who would tell me that I just want to function as best as I can. And if there are dyskinesia down the road, we'll deal with it at the same time, uh, at that time. So it's really a very individual thing, and doctors should be working with their patients to decide what medication is best for that, for that particular individual. Absolutely. And I think it's very important for doctors to understand that um, even if there are dyskinesia, um, they may not be severe, and there are certain things that we can do. So is it wise to... Um, try to avoid dyskinesia by sacrificing um, some efficacy of medications up front. Um, that would be a question that has to be decided between the patient and the physician. 
Serena, thanks for joining us today. That's all for this month's podcast. Both papers we've talked about are available on jnmp.bmj.com and we'll be back next month with the November issue. Join us then.